A lot of us think nothing of having a drink after a long day. Happy hour with colleagues, a glass of wine with dinner, or a nightcap before bed. But what happens when one leads to two, and that becomes many more? And why do some of us know when to stop while others don't and spiral out of control? I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, a Manhattan resident who skipped down the wrong path, who started drinking alcohol at an early age. He shares his story. And later, out in NYC, a full-service gay hotel is coming to Midtown Manhattan. We'll get a preview. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. Good morning. First this morning, Alcoholism 101. Dr. Suzette Evans is a professor of clinical neurobiology at Columbia University. She's also a research scientist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. She joins us this morning to shed some light on alcoholism. Dr. Evans, thanks for taking the time. Thank you. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about alcoholism? That's a tough question because I think people may think that it's not easy to treat or that it is easy to treat, that once you, you know, why don't people just stop using what's their problem? It's impairing their entire lives, and yet somehow they don't have the virtue or capability of doing that. But I think people have to understand that it's a disease that has a lot of facets that are involved in it and a lot of reasons why some people, you know, have problems with alcohol while other people can become social drinkers and never develop a problem. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Why is it that some people can have a drink or two and just know, okay, I've had too much when others can't stop drinking? Some people may be aware that there are genetic risk factors, and those have been pretty well demonstrated in both adoption studies, twin studies, and looking at tracking individuals who have alcoholic parents. So those people who have alcoholic parents are at a much higher risk of developing alcoholism. But I think people need to understand that it doesn't mean you're going to develop alcoholism. It means you have a greater propensity to do so. And having that alcoholic parent, some of that's related to just straightforward genetics, and some of it's related to also the environment. Because in the environment, obviously, if you're living with an alcoholic parent, it's not just the genetics, but the fact that you have a probably a dysfunctional household. There's probably a lot of neglect, whether it's physical or emotional neglect or physical or sexual abuse. And all of those factors can feed into people going on to use alcohol as a way of coping. There's a reasonable amount of data now showing that individuals who've experienced trauma, say, for instance, I do most of my work with women, women who were sexually abused as children, they're more likely to have problems with alcohol and drug use. And again, it probably could be a coping mechanism. They're more responsive to stress. We've also been able to show that they're more responsive or actually behave more impulsively. And some of us know that if you're impulsive, you're apt to take more risks, you have to drink more. When you drink more, unfortunately, it sort of becomes kind of a circular event because if you drink more, you become more impulsive. And as you drink more, you start doing riskier things that get you into trouble. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it just keeps feeding into itself. But certainly, you know, given that women, you know, about 20%, up to 20% of women have been sexually abused. Mm-hmm. 
And of those women, you know, a good portion of them have alcoholic parents. Are women or men in general more likely to suffer from alcoholism? At this point in time, men are substantially at higher risk of developing alcoholism than women. However, the problem is, is that even though women are less likely to become alcoholics, their drinking level does not have to be the same as that of men, and they don't have to drink for as long a time as men to actually be in need of treatment. So basically, one of the t- phrases that we use in the field is, for women, the disease telescopes. It takes you less time to get to the same problem level. But also, another thing that people have to consider, particularly in the U.S. and other countries, is that the gender gap between drinking in men and women is actually decreasing. So that women are now drinking, particularly younger women, are drinking at a similar level and frequency, which means that we're going to be having a greater risk of women developing alcohol problems down the road. Why is that the case? Just simply societal changes? I think a lot of it's societal changes. In the past, when I was recruiting moderate female drinkers for my studies, one of the things I also noticed was back then, this is about 10 years ago, most of them were white You could very rarely find a woman who was of Asian descent or even Hispanic or black. Now, I have a much broader range of ethnic groups of women who are meeting the criteria for moderate drinking. You have the other generations who are no longer first-generation Americans. Their parents may have come here, but now they're more assimilated into our culture. They're drinking more. There's also evidence that... It sounds kind of counterintuitive, but if you go to college, you're more apt to be at risk of binge drinking compared to individuals who don't go to college. So if you're genetically at risk of becoming an alcoholic and you attend a party school, there's a lot of drinking going around, then that could perhaps sway you down the road of becoming an alcoholic? Yes, but there's also other data, primarily in men, that individuals, whether or not they have a family history of alcoholism, if their response to alcohol get them intoxicated in the laboratory, essentially, if they have, basically if they're less responsive to it, say they, be, they actually report being less intoxicated, if they're less impaired by alcohol compared to someone else, interestingly, those individuals are actually at increased risk of developing alcoholism. And it might be because their body isn't telling them when to stop. What are the warning signs, doctor, that someone may be an alcoholic? Obviously, one of the clear signs is that you're drinking at a level that um, people around you are complaining about it. Uh, Maybe your friends, your family members. You're failing to meet your normal obligations because of your drinking. Say, for instance, you are failing to attend your classes because you're hungover or you call in sick to work or you, for, you know, don't go to pick up your kid after soccer practice because you had too many beers at the football game. Other things that are more obvious are you're involved with the law. You're pulled over for either public intoxication and disorderliness or you're pulled over for uh, driving while intoxicated. Those are clear signs that you have a problem. Or some would say that the fact that you've made multiple attempts to cut down and have been unsuccessful. You know, in some cases, people might actually have clear medical problems. Maybe their doctor has told them they have hypertension or that they're already having problems with their liver. And if they're already seeing those signs and the doctor says you really should cut down on your drinking and the person isn't able to. 
One other thing that we look at, doesn't happen as often, but that someone needs a drink to get the day started. Is there a difference, though, between alcoholism and alcohol abuse? Can we separate those two? If you go by diagnostic criteria, there is alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence. Alcoholism is sort of kind of a catchphrase, which I generally try not to use. Abuse, I would like to say, is generally viewed as perhaps a somewhat milder form, but not necessarily because some of the things that could make you abuse alcohol, like I mentioned before, the not showing up to work, um, having trouble with the law, those are clear problems. When you get into dependence, you may also have physiological dependence, where in the event that you aren't drinking alcohol, you actually may experience some clear withdrawal symptoms. And those are often people who are going into formal kind of inpatient detoxification units where they really need medical supervision. Right. These are people who are stopping cold turkey, but you need to be in an environment where you're being cared for. Correct. But generally with people who are abusing alcohol, I don't think it's always at that level. But certainly those who abuse alcohol can go on to become dependent and have those other issues. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier in the interview, doctor, that some people think that it's easy to be treated for alcoholism. Other people think that it's very difficult to get over it, to quit the alcohol. What kinds of treatments are available for people in these situations? There are several types of treatment. Um, One is that people can obviously go to Alcoholics Anonymous. That certainly works for some people. I know some of the people I've talked with will say that you have to be sort of the right person for that type of environment where you sort of bear your soul and go through all the 12 steps. If you are a person who has a severe problem, there are inpatient units where you can go under detoxification. And generally those places will try to get you into some kind of other treatment where they'll either be doing some kind of behavioral treatment. But the other thing that really I think is the bigger component of all this in terms of treatment is that the person themselves, they have to be ready. There can be effective treatments. You can offer them to people. You can have people at great risk of potentially losing their job or or losing their spouse because of this problem. But ultimately, the person has to be ready to make the change. Okay. Dr. Suzette Evans, I thank you so much for your input on this very important issue. Thank you. Dr. Suzette Evans is a Columbia professor and a research scientist. For more than 70 years, Alcoholics Anonymous has been helping people find sobriety with its 12-step program. AA introduced us to Chris, a Manhattan resident whose drinking was out of control by his mid-teens. Today, he shares his journey. Chris, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let me just cut to the chase here and ask you, how old were you when you had your first drink? Around the age of three. Uh, Three? Yeah. it was, uh, and I remember exactly what it was. It was Fleischmann's Whiskey. My father was a factory worker and was a with a, a shot in a beer guy. He used to call them boilermakers back then, and, and uh, he used to leave it, you know, laying on his little table. And he'd got up one day, and I don't know why, I just walked by it one day and wondered what was in that little glass, you know. And and I grabbed it and I took a drink, you know, not not exactly because I had a hard day in the sandbox, but uh, <laughs> I just for some reason had a curiosity about it, and uh, said so I, I took myself a sip and choked violently and as any three-year-old or four-year-old might now one would think that would have turned you off to alcohol i remember yeah i remember (laughs) taking a bite out of my dad's cigarette 
when I was a kid, and you know what? I never wanted to go near a cigarette. Well, that's the funny thing about uh, people who have, say, alcoholic and drug addiction. You know, you you would think uh, logically that with some of the results that happen, that somebody would immediately walk away from it. But for some, I don't know. There's this little thing that happens in the brain that says this time it's going to be different. And I've heard that story a thousand times over. How old though were you when alcohol became a problem? Fifteen. I was in a high school party and I got drunk for the very first time, and uh, and it was it was like a switch went off. You know, the the feeling that I had gotten from that was that feeling that I had been looking for all my life. You know, you just felt connected. You felt powerful. You know, no fear, no inhibitions, no nothing. And so I, I, I sought that uh, for every day after that. So would you say you were lacking self-confidence without the alcohol? Yeah, I would say so. And I think that, you know, and that seems to be the common denominator among a lot of people who suffer from alcoholism. Um, at the bottom of all of it is there's a, there's a lot of just fear. I mean, every, every normal person goes through that. And, you know, when they're younger, even older, that's sort of feeling of not fitting in. And, but it seems to be exacerbated with, within the alcoholic. It's like if, you were, if you feel a little out of place on a scale of 1 to 10, say about a 2, most alcoholics I've ever met, it's about an 11. So do you then trace your alcohol alcoholism to that party, that drink, that night that you got drunk? Well, yeah. I mean, I would say that definitely was what lit the fuse, if you will, this magical one-night period. And I, and I sort of chased that high, if you will, um, for every chance I could after that. But unfortunately, it becomes hit or miss. Alcoholism, as I've learned, is a, is a progressive disease as well. And you know, I was not a big guy as a drinker, but I was able, to, in a very short period of time, my tolerance uh, grew and was drinking, you know, football players under the table kind of thing and, and, and functioning um, as people would look at me kind of, geez, what's the matter with you kind of thing? And uh, I'd wonder what was the matter with them. So you, you can't know? equate alcoholism with drunkenness. No, I mean, that's, and I think that's the most common fallacy. And that's part of why um, some of the literature in AA and really breaks that down and differentiates it to two simple questions. Basically, if you know, if you pick up a drink and you find that you have little to no control over the amount you drink, or that if you try to quit, you find you can't quit entirely, and I'm quoting pretty much verbatim from the book, you know, you're, you're probably an alcoholic. <laughs> so, when did you realize that you had a problem? It was actually fairly quick. I mean, I, I got sober when I was 19, actually, and it was four years of heavy drinking, yeah, and I, and I was, you know, as they say, spared that last 15 or 20 years of literal hell. Um, you know, AA has evolved in such so much over the years that a lot of very young people are coming into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I actually had an, I was very fortunate. I met a gentleman and I was completely liquored up and was about to get into a fight with a guy who was about four times bigger than me. And I'm screaming at him in the middle of this club. But he never lectured me or anything. He just basically uh, said to me one day, I'm going to this this meeting and, you know, you're welcome to come if you want. And it caught my attention. Didn't think I had a problem, but I liked the meeting. I thought it was a, you know, nice, really nice group group of people and they were friendly, which is not what I was used to being around. I found nothing but welcome and, and good spirits uh, in AA meetings. And I think that's a lot of why, you know, newcomers become so attractive because, you, you know, you come in so beat down and you've been through literal hell, you know, and when you find these friendly faces, it's a real oasis. But at that first meeting, you weren't ready to stand up and say, hi, my name is Chris and I'm an alcoholic. No, I got drunk after my first meeting and I had every intention of drinking that night. And, you know, as cocky and as obnoxious as I was, I was actually struck by the spirit in the room, if you will, um, but way far away from acknowledging that I had any kind of problem. So how long after that first meeting that you went to, did you say to yourself, you know what, 
I am one of these people. I had this sort of grace of God, if you will, uh, uh, guy put in my life. And, you know, he'd say, hey, by the way, I was going to go to the 730 meeting. Uh, do you want to come? And so I was drinking for about a year and a half and going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. With AA him. does not have no. you pledge, I will not drink. No, not at all. And that's what makes it uh, a lot different. There is no Irish pledge, if you will. And the irony is there's nowhere in the literature that says don't drink. You know, nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. You're free to come and go as you please. And I think that's what sometimes throws n new alcoholics to the program because they're waiting for – just waiting for somebody with the fists up to tell them, you know, I'm waiting for somebody to tell me what to do. And nobody does. You know, I was in all kinds of pain. It was a bit of a basket case when I got – you know, first came into, into AA. But people were very tolerant, very supportive, and I think that's you know, really what saved my life. You know? So you weaned yourself off alcohol? Yeah, well, I, I had quit immediately. I mean, I had stopped for about three or four months and then went on a, a pretty bad bender one week. I had no intention of drinking. It really just caught me off guard. Um, you know, it just took barely 24 hours for me to get right back off to the races. You just go right back where you left off. So how does AA work to help you kick it? That's a very good question. I mean, I think part of it, really, the biggest suggestion we have for people who are brand new to just keep showing up, you know, and keep, you know, uh, feeling your way out. We don't, we don't, you know, force feed steps down people's throats. And I, and I find that allowing people to go through their own individual journey is what helps because that's what helped me. And so I had a, you know, big chunk of friends. We, you know, go out to dinner to get bowling movies and things like that. And it really kind of it made it easier not to drink. But I was still just hadn't been dealing with why I was drinking to begin with. And, you know, I kind of have been not drinking for six or seven months. And I'm like, okay, I'm not drinking, but wow, all right, I feel like I'm going to crawl out of my skin. This doesn't sound like happy, joyous, and free as AA promises. So something must be up here. So I, I got what we call a sponsor, which was somebody who had, you know, been through the steps and had a lot more experience and time than I did and who was able to, like, walk me through those 12 steps. And uh, and that's what you know, where we find that people really begin to change their behavior. And that's really what uh, – helps long-standing sobriety is that, you know, in it's in the changing of the behavior and your outlook and things like that. But the results have been amazing, you know, and it's and it's humbling, too, because you think you're proud of yourself on one end and the other end. It keeps you humble to say, you know, I still have a long way to go. I think a lot of people are familiar with the 12 steps mm -hmm. of AA, but what would you like people to know about that? Or what do you think are the biggest misnomers about those 12 steps? A lot of people are resistant because there's a spiritual aspect of the program, too, and the word God uh, does appear in the 12 steps. The idea of sitting in a room full of people that I don't really know that well and talking about spirituality or talking about your feelings or talking about, you know, is something that I made fun of in my teens. And there's no way that I would have ever done this. Uh, but I got to tell you something that, you know, the, the pain of my alcoholism trumped my attitude about what the treatment was, realizing that there's a you know power greater than me and that, that I need to take inventory of myself, of my behavior and so forth. If I've done wrong, I make amends for it and I try to be helpful to other people. I mean, that's really what it all breaks down to if you want to take all the fluff out of it. Um, and that's, I think, the common theme in just about every spiritual movement or religion you would come to. How much of it comes down to you understanding why you're drinking in the first place. If you asked me when I was 18, 19 years old, when I first came in, why I drank, I would tell you because I love to get drunk. And that's as honest as I could possibly be. But the longer I stay sober, I started to learn why I drank because I wasn't drinking anymore. And, you know, you start to realize there's a whole host of internal problems going on. And, and, and they really come to the surface when you stop drinking. 
you know, so many people are encouraged when they come to AA to get involved in service, whether it's making coffee at a meeting or answering phones or even doing an interview like this, you know, and trying to be of help, you know, that kind of gets you out of yourself. And certain things that people do, you know, quite naturally do volunteer work, but it's just funny that alcoholics have to be told to do this sort of thing. (laughs) Like, you're going to feel better. Okay, I'll do it. You know, that's what we find uh, that seems to work. Did you have a support system at home, or were you on your own with this? Uh, that's a good one. I always say I was on my own about this, and you know, and I come from a family of drinkers, and my drinking at family functions and so forth was never, I would say it was rarely frowned upon unless I was an embarrassment, and I was more than a few times, which was funny because I used to resent my father's drinking, and then he was embarrassed by mine. I was like, how ironic is that? But when it was discovered that I was going to AA, I would say it was more of a strange taboo topic in the house. No one really talked about it, let's put it that way. Um, In fact, no one really talks about it even today, and I've been sober for quite a while. But AA does offer help to families that want to be involved, right? It affects the rest of the family and friends and so forth in a way uh, that's different than, say, if somebody had cancer or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, the behavior and the turmoil and the emotional anguish and so forth, that can be around alcohol. It, it, it tends to permeate the family. Did you solely just go to AA or did you seek other types of help? A number of years into my sobriety, I, I saw a therapist for the very first time, um, and that was uh, very helpful too because AA really only uh, claims to be able to help w- with its experience in alcoholism and, and is very clear that you know we are not psychiatrists, we are not people's bankers, we're not attorneys, we're not any of that stuff, and if you need outside help, we encourage you to do that. You know, it plugged a lot of holes that AA did not plug in. So it was a nice additive. That's a great question, actually. When you were going through your recovery and you were standing up and falling down and standing up and falling down again, you mentioned that you had a sponsor. So Mm -hmm. describe that relationship because I know you're a sponsor now. Yeah, I sponsor um, about eight guys right now. Um, Part of how AA works is that, you know, I'm helped by helping you. And that's what somebody did for me. They, you know, I, there was a guy when I was about a year and a half sober. It was a we thing, if you will, and we walked together through the journey. And and that's really what the help is. That you're not by yourself doing this. You know, you're not, and there's no reason to be. But I've had a number of sponsors over the year because everybody's wired a little different. You know, and the the guy who first took me through the steps was not a big talker. My more recent sponsors who are not only good with the steps, but they're very good, a good uh, counsel, if you will, to talk to. They're a lot older than me, have a lot more life experience, and I can run a situation by them. What do you think about this? Uh, a real voice of reason. And that's what I try to do with the guys that I work with as well. I sponsor some guys that are brand new in the program, some guys that have been around for three or four years that um, maybe will call me up and say, hey, I'm having a problem with this. What do you think about this? And you know, that's really what it is. It's more of like a friendship and fellowship thing rather than like the professor and student, if you will. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That's what we say. There's the the old expression, you know, once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it's never a cucumber again. And yeah, I would I would exactly say that. You know, I I've been sober for about 16 years. There is no belief in my mind whatsoever that if I were to leave this studio right now and you know go to a bar and and have a drink that, you know, I'd be fine with that. So yes, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Absolutely. You know, I just don't, I don't process alcohol like most people do. I had a conversation with my mother one time uh, when I was about two years sober and I, I could still wasn't quite getting this thing. And she would have a, a couple of drinks every night. I'm like, okay, she drinks every night, but I don't get this thing that she's an alcoholic. I said, Ma, what happens to you when you drink? I mean, how does it feel? She said, oh, it relaxes me. You know, it, I, I like to. I said, I understand that. But what about if you start to feel the effects of alcohol? How do you feel? 
And she says to me, well, if I start to feel like I'm getting a little out of control, I don't like that feeling, so I just stop. And that's when I realized the difference. My thought was, that's when I'm just getting started, you know. And uh, a lot of times for me, you know, I hear so many AA stories over the years. If I have a conversation with a non-alcoholic, sometimes that more reaffirms to me that I'm an alcoholic. You know, if I hear and I just see people and how they react around alcohol, I don't get it. I don't relate to it. I don't get it because that's not me. That's not how I drink. How differently do you live your life now? Do you go to bars with friends? Do you hang out at clubs? What do you what don't you do that you did before? Well, I also really didn't hang out in many bars too because of of my how young I was uh when I was drinking, but uh you know, if I'm if I'm out with friends and so forth and and AA is a big proponent of that, you know, we're not saying you have to avoid alcohol at all costs. You know, if you're out on business or you're out in a social event and your friends want to go to a bar and you feel comfortable, go. But if you don't feel comfortable, then don't go. I mean, we have stipulations about that. If you feel like you're on solid ground, go ahead and do that. So we don't avoid life. I would love for people to understand is AA is not a group of teetotalers and we're not anti-alcohol. I love alcohol. <laughs> I love booze. You know, uh, so I am not against booze. Um, I just know I can't drink safely. So I have been to gatherings, uh, bars or lounges and so forth. I don't hang out of them on a regular basis because there's really no reason for me to do so. My social life does not revolve around going out to the clubs and things like that. It's just that, you know, when you stop drinking and you start stop partying like that, you just quite naturally, your lifestyle does change. How understanding are people? Is there a stigma? Attached Any kind of addiction, there's a definite stigma around that because I think people don't understand what's happening internally with the addict or alcoholic. Okay. Chris, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Chris is a recovering alcoholic. He lives in Manhattan. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. Finally today, out in New York City, quite literally, WFUV's Katie Moore brings us the story of a new hotel and nightclub slated for Midtown Manhattan. Traditionally speaking, you'll find a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. And that seems to be what two developers and life partners are banking on with their latest project, the first ever gay urban resort, located right in the heart of Hell's Kitchen. Their venture comes on the heels of last year's Rainbow Pilgrimage, a citywide campaign aimed at bringing gay tourists to the Big Apple for the 40th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. When you say LGBT community, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. This mini-documentary called Out in the City was just one way NYC and company, the city's official marketing machine, helped draw in millions of visitors, along with their checkbooks. They accept your gay money. Yes. This chic five-star resort nestled near the Lincoln Tunnel is the sole brainchild of developers Ian Reisner and Maddie Vitapes. They're taking an old, vacant travel in and giving it a fresh facelift. While touring me around the future side of the hotel, dubbed the Out NYC, Ian told me their vision coincides with a broader city-wide trend. The gay population started off in the 70s um, in the West Village. The 80s and 90s was all about Chelsea. Starting right after the turn of the century, we saw a very large migration of bars and restaurants, which then ended up having young gay people following those bars and restaurants to Hell's Kitchen. And I found this unique location on 42nd Street, halfway between Chelsea and Hell's Kitchen. So we jokingly call this Hell's 
Chelsea Heights, Chelsea Clinton. The planned 123-room hotel will offer a laundry list of amenities, including a spa, cafe, and a 5,000-square-foot dance bar, which is stirring up some buzz. While some neighbors love the idea, others aren't so sure. Bob Leventhal owns a liquor store across the street. I have no problem with the hotel, and no one, no neighbors have problem with the hotel. They have problems with the disco that's going to be on top of the hotel that they think is going to be making a lot of noise late at night and letting out at four in the morning. And they don't think that's going to be good for their uh, kids, and I have a tendency to agree with them. But the developers say they've already figured that out. They've got a top-notch security monitor in place with soundproof insulated walls, and there's a police station right next door. Even the local community board is on board with the plan. Chairman John Weiss says there's been lots of positive feedback. I think for the most part, people are really excited. You know, I think it's a little surprising that there hasn't been something like this built in New York, um, where, you know, it's a little gay mecca. Some even predict this hotel could trigger a bigger national trend, something that's already caught on in Europe, where the gay-centered Axel resorts have branches in Berlin and Barcelona. If things go well, this might be the lucky pot of gold the city needs in these tough economic times. NYC and company's Tiffany Townsend says it could be a magnet for gay tourists around the world. And that's something Westside resident Sheb Wanen is thrilled about. He and his partner are hoping the hotel leads to a whole new set of friends. We're a worldwide community, obviously, and it's exciting for foreigners, I've been a foreigner myself, to go to an establishment where you can meet other gay foreigners from other places. You know, this international camaraderie that we have is it's uh, really important to strengthen. It's, it's a great thing. The hotel is slated to open next spring, but the nightclub called XL will make its debut first, opening up in the fall. For Cityscape, I'm Katie Moore. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. Have a great weekend.